In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht git blether. And you can also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. And welcome to another episode, episode 31 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And we're recording this in an atmosphere of great sadness today, because today, Saturday, is the funeral of His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. And we'd like to pay a special tribute from Scottish Blethers to the great man to reflect on and celebrate his links, particularly with Scotland. So that's the theme of our episode this week. Now, even at 99 years old, the announcement came as a shock when it began to to spread through the population. There was a wave of genuine sadness. It was as if a member of your extended family had passed away. And there's no doubt at all that he was held in great affection across the UK and in Scotland in particular. So we had the opportunity in the days that followed to learn more about his remarkable life And the key words that keep coming out are a life lived in service. So it was an opportunity to scrape beneath the surface and learn a little bit more than what you see on The Crown on Netflix. So Helen, over to you. Where did the title Duke of Edinburgh come from? Yes, now that was quite interesting because I had actually wasn't really very aware of it, never thought about where it came from. But it's obviously named after the city of Edinburgh in Scotland. And the current holder is Prince Charles at the moment, and he inherited the title when his father, Prince Philip, died. But the title was first created in 1726 by King George I, who bestowed it on his grandson, Prince Frederick. Now, if you remember, there's a Frederick Street in Edinburgh. Upon Frederick's death, the titles were inherited by his son, Prince George. And when George became king, became George III in 1760, the titles merged into the crown and sort of disappeared, ceased to exist. So that was the first time we had the Duke of Edinburgh. And then Queen Victoria recreated the title in 1866 for her second son, Prince Alfred. His only son, Alfred, committed suicide in 1899. So the Dukedom of Edinburgh became extinct in 1900. But again, it was recreated, this time for the third time, on the 19th of November 1947 by King George VI for his son-in-law to be Philip Mountbatten when he married the then Princess Elizabeth. And then, as I said, on Prince Philip's death, the title was inherited by Prince Charles, his eldest son. 
who succeeded to all the hereditary titles at that time. They use this term merge in the crown, so they just all get drawn back in again. Yes, which I think is quite interesting. And we've seen that right down through history, don't we? Things that are out there just come back under the one label to be a gift to somebody. And Liz, I think you were saying that Prince Edward has got a gift. Yes, Prince Edward is the youngest son of the Queen and Prince Philip. And Queen in 1999 specified that she wanted him to inherit the title Duke of Edinburgh. So when Charles ascends to the throne on the death of the Queen, the title will pass to Prince Edward. And he seems to increasingly be becoming a favourite of the Queen. She's particularly close to Sophie, his wife, Sophie Rees-Jones, who he married. And the pair of them are very, very supportive of the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme, which we'll, we'll talk more about later. And so it's appropriate that that title passes to him. I think before we go on to the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme, it's interesting to reflect on how Philip became so closely attached to Scotland in the first place and also the origins of the Duke of Edinburgh award scheme. And that is Gordonston School. Have you ever visited Helen? I used to live very close to it and I've passed by and seen all the kids and everything. So I know of Gordonston. Yeah, it's a beautiful school um, set up on the northeast coast of Scotland in Moray, close to Lossiemouth. And it's interesting to reflect, how did a young impoverished immigrant, which is what Prince Philip referred to himself as, find himself at a school near Elgin on the northeast coast of Scotland? Well, I think people are familiar with Philip's early upbringing and he had to leave Greece. And for many years, he just travelled around itinerant and passed from family member to family member until he went to the German school, School Schloss Salem, which had been founded by Kurt Hahn in Germany. And it was owned by one of his brother-in-laws. It was in the family. And the family thought that it would be good for him to go there because it was an international school. And it was built on very special learning principles. Kurt Hahn had a great respect for adolescents and he thought that they had an innate decency and moral sense. And he wanted to make sure that he could give them training, which would help to protect them from the corruption of society as they age. Now, if you think that he established the school in 1918, at the end of World War I, there was a strong belief that people needed development and we needed to train community leaders. Unfortunately, as we move forward to Hitler coming to power, Han himself was a German Jew and he had to flee. He was arrested and he had to flee. But he had friends in high places. And so when he came to the UK, the Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald was one of his greatest supporters. And he had many friends up in Moray on the northeast coast. And so they encouraged him and supported him to establish the school up there at Gordonston. And so in 1934, it started with just two students that he brought with him from Germany. But it grew steadily and Philip Mountbatten was one of the first students to join. So that by the start of World War II, there were 135 boys registered at the school. Kurt Hahn focused on an opportunity for self-discovery. He thought that boys should meet with triumph and defeat in equal measure and that their education should free the sons of the wealthy and powerful from an enervating sense of privilege. And he was very keen to give scholarships for local boys. So I'm sure anybody that knows anything about Gordonston knows that it's famed for its Spartan routine. In those days, it was cold showers, early morning runs, discipline runs. So it was quite a hard regime and Philip thrived on it. 
There's also, still to this day, periods of silence for reflection. And diet was seen as being important to promote to the brain. So Philip thrived and he loved his time there. And it very definitely carved his character as he moved forward in life and to become um, such a support to the Queen throughout her life. He sent his own sons there. And there's a lot written about the fact that Charles hated it. He called it colditz and kilt. But actually, in recent years, he's spoken with great fondness about it. Fortunately, Anne couldn't attend because it didn't become co-educational until 1972. But she did send her children, Peter and Zara Phillips, and also Edward and Andrew, two other sons of the Queen and Prince Philip. And Princess Royal, although she couldn't be a pupil, she did do a spell as a governor. So strong royal links. Also links with celebrities. We've got Sean Connery's son, Jason. He was a, a student there. And even David Bowie's son, who was christened Zowie Bowie. But he got rid of that by the time he got to school, quite understandably. And he was just simple Duncan Jones. So many celebrities' children have been educated there as well as royal children. And even to this day, over 30% of students come from overseas. They come from abroad. So it's finding it particularly challenging at the moment because it's not got the income from all the international students that it normally has there. Yes, and one of the things about the Gordonston pupils, that they are, at least they were when I lived up there, the local fire brigade Absolutely. and the local coast guard. So they were trained to be the standby firemen if something went on, because it's quite a remote, along that coast, it's, it's quite remote. So to have somebody on hand who was trained was very good. Well, one of the pillars of the school is service. So um, they are the only school in the UK to run their own private fire service. One of my memories of Gordonston or the Gordonston era was that when the Queen and Prince Philip's sons were at Gordonston, probably the younger sons, the Queen used to come up to visit them. And I used to go to church. I went to church at Lambride and one of the elders or one of the staunch churchgoers at Lambride was Captain Ian Tennant, who was a governor at Gordonston. And he and his wife, Lady Margaret, Lady Margaret Ogilvy was the sister of Angus Ogilvy, who was Princess Alexandra's husband. So a slight relationship there by marriage. But the Queen stayed with them when she was visiting her sons. And she just came to church with them on a Sunday like any other visitor to a church member. She just came and she sat in the pew with Captain Ian and Lady Margaret. So she just enjoyed her time in Scotland. Just an ordinary parent. Well, I have to say that my experience of Gordonston in a previous life before guiding, I was director of recruitment and admissions. So I used to go out to schools to meet with pupils and meet with staff and whatever. And one weekend it was an event at Gordonston. And so I took my husband and daughter where we're going to make it an extended weekend. So they came with me and were intending to just sort of hang about in the car or whatever. But the headmaster at that time was Mark Piper. And he said, no, no, come in, come in. We'll, we'll have tea and whatever. So we went inside and Jenny, my daughter would have been about six or seven at the time he says I think this is very boring for you would you not prefer to go over to my house and play with my children and she said yes okay so up and off she went and he goes that's remarkable he says no looking back she was just up and off there independent sense of he was praising her but my abiding recollection of it was that we got dinner and of course while she was playing with the children she got nothing so by the time we picked her up she was furious she was absolutely starving and there was nothing open for her to get anything to eat so she didn't have a particularly positive experience of Gordonston. <laughs> but I, I thought the way she went away without a backward look at you and her dad, was that her saying something as well? Well, anything's better than being stuck here. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Independent yeah. spirit, yeah. 
But you were talking about food, Liz, and I came across this wee thing in 2014 to mark Gordonson's 80th anniversary. Prince Philip went to visit Gordonson because he used to love going there. They said he visibly relaxed, he visibly just was back home. But he insisted on joining the students in the queue for lunch rather than taking a seat and having brought to him, despite being in his 90s, he still wanted to queue up and be one of the boys. Yes, it brought back so many memories. Another interesting quote, you know, that the school very much promotes physical activity, particularly mountaineering and seamanship. So that was where Prince Philip learned to sail. But he said his his statement was, my best schoolmaster was the Murray Firth. That's a stretch of water off the course. I was wet, cold, miserable, probably sick and often scared stiff, but I wouldn't have missed the experience for anything. So character forming. (laughs) And of course, it was from that that they established the Duke of Edinburgh Award. It was Kurt Hahn who had the Murray Award at the school. And he asked Philip if he would set up and become patron of the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme. Have you got any experience of that, Helen? No, my children didn't do it, didn't do the Duke of Edinburgh Award, but my grandchildren are doing it. And and Anna, my granddaughter, she's got her gold award already. And Ben is working towards his yeah, my daughter went right through it as well, the, through bronze, silver to gold. So did your granddaughter get it presented at Holyrood? At Holyrood, yes. Just a lovely experience for them. And it does, you can just see the, the youngsters who are doing the awards. They grow in confidence and, and in stature. They're, it is just so good for them and a very good thing to have on a CV. Yeah, and it used to be considered, you know, elite. It was largely independent schools that did it. In the 1970s, employers really grasped the fact that it's so many skills to potential employees, so they really got behind it. And now it's very much focused to all walks of life. In fact, one of the most moving things recently in the tributes to Prince Philip was uh, an ex-offender, someone who had found himself in prison at a young age. And he was talking about how the Duke of Edinburgh Award scheme had literally turned his life around. He'd developed cooking skills and gone on to become a chef so you know it was transformational and over 8 million participants across the globe have now achieved a Duke of Edinburgh award. Yeah one of the points of it apart from the one that you mentioned was the fact that it was designed for people who were not necessarily members of any organisation it wasn't for the Boy Scout movement it wasn't for the Girl Guide movement it wasn't for the Boys Brigade it was just they could all be part of it but if you weren't a member of any of the uniformed organisations, your school could do it or you could just do it yourself outside through a centre. It is a very, very good scheme. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, when it was established in 1956, it was just not long after the end of World War II. And it was about giving youngsters a sense of achievement. It wasn't competitive. It wasn't a, an organisation like the Scouts, as you said. It was just to achieve something in service, teamwork, resilience, leadership. And so 1956 for boys and 1958 for girls. Which is actually quite interesting because at that time that was really quite forward looking because girls were still excluded from a lot of things in the 50s. And for the Duke of Edinburgh Award Scheme to realise that this was something that girls could participate in and on an equal footing was brilliant. 
Yeah, and I mentioned Sophie, Countess of Wessex, Prince Edward's wife. In 2016, it was the 60th anniversary and they introduced the Diamond Award. And she was one of the first to achieve the Diamond Award. She cycled from Holyrood Palace in Edinburgh to Buckingham Palace in London. That's a total of 445 miles. It took her six days, but she did it, which was brilliant. And Prince Edward himself, he also achieved the the Duke of Edinburgh Gold Award. He hasn't done the Diamond. He hasn't kept up with his but of course, Scotland is absolutely perfect because particularly the Cairngorms, as part of it, they have to do an outdoor expedition. And that is just absolutely perfect. So you get all these Duke of Edinburgh participants going up on hikes through and, and camping out in the, the Cairngorms. And for these kind of triathlon type of things with the kayaking and the, the hiking and the cycling, it just lends itself, as you say, to that I remember my grandson, when he was doing his practice for their expedition, they were on Loch Awe. They kayaked over and camped on one of the islands in Loch Awe. And he said, sadly, it was just such a litter place. But the four boys that were there just got their heads down and got on with picking up and clearing the little island of the litter that had been left by others, which I thought, again, that's something that the Duke of Edinburgh Award kind of teaches us selflessness. Think of others, serve as you're helping the community. And of course, that was rooted in old Kurt Hahn and his uh, Murray Award, which was about developing community leaders. So it goes on to be extremely valuable. But I think if we reflect on the Duke of Edinburgh, I have to think really about his links with Edinburgh because it was a city that he loved. He was president or patron or a member of about 30 different Edinburgh-based organisations at any point. Did you ever come across him? I did come across him once when I was working at what was Lauder College in Dunfermline, a College of Further Education. They had built in the 1990s what was called the House of the Future. It was the construction department had built this. And what we've learned about the Duke of Edinburgh this week in all the tributes that have been paid was that he was just fascinated with advances in technology and taking science to the nth degree. Well, this House of the Future was technologically designed with all its Heating and insulation and everything was of the future. This was the 1990s. So Prince Philip came to open it. And my abiding memory of that, Liz, and you'll, you'll have a smile, was that the catering department, the construction department had built the House of the Future. So they were hosting the prince as he came round. But the catering department of the college were given the job of making the house feel like a home. So what do you do when you're making a house feel like a home? Is that you have coffee on the brew and you bake scones. Well, one of the catering department, who was not a very small woman, (laughs) she decided to make scones. And of course, all I can remember of Sheila was her giggle. And of course, she was bending down in the oven to get out the scones when Prince Philip came in. And of course, a rather large person bending down in the oven did raise a smile on Prince Philip's face that day. He was interested in technology, but he thought this was rather amusing to see the scones coming out of the oven as well. That's exactly how I remember him, Helen, because my opportunities to meet with him on a few occasions came through the University of Edinburgh because he was Chancellor of the University of Edinburgh for 57 years from 1953 to 2010. So he had a huge influence on the university and I worked there for a number of years as Director of Recruitment and Admissions and I would be invited along to the Chancellor's Dinners, which was an annual event held in Holyrood. It's the closest I've ever come to a red carpet event. You know, you had all the tourists <laughs> round about taking photos 
photos and you felt something special as you got out of the taxi. But it was part of the, the huge support that he gave to the university. He was always there overseeing its growth and development. He would open new buildings. He would induct new professors. He'd confer honorary degrees if it was somebody very important. And one of the things was that he would give long-standing achievement awards. And this was the particular dinner. And I always used to think it was one of the few occasions when he got out from underneath the Queen's skirts and he had this mischievous sense of fun. He <laughs> always had a smile on his face. He was always looking for trouble. You know, I can remember that when the rectors of the university were elected by the students, it could sometimes deteriorate into boisterous fun with a lot of toilet rolls <laughs> and flour getting shot. And he loved it. He would sit there laughing at it. Timothy O'Shea, who was the principal while I was there, said he was very jolly. Meals with the Chancellor were always great fun. He was a visible, positive presence. And that's exactly what he was. On one particular occasion, we had a project going on within the university to try and encourage boys who wouldn't normally think of the University of Edinburgh as being relevant to them, you know, boys from certain underprivileged areas or whatever, but they loved football. So we had this project where the first 11 football team were role models and the boys would come into the school for football coaching. And in the meantime, we would try and instill in them, you know, this is relevant to you. You know, these were people who were achieving in their, their own schools in difficult circumstances. So Prince Philip came to visit this. And of course, the first thing that he said to me when I was introduced to him, he goes, football? Why football? Why not cricket? Now, if you think about it, there's not a lot of cricket played in the underprivileged areas around Edinburgh. But this was exactly what he was known for. And I think that Prince Harry summed it up. I think Prince Harry's tribute to him was by far and away the best. He said, master of the barbecue, legend of banter. And banter, to me, sums up exactly what it was. It was teasing, it was humorous, it was meant to relax people, give something to talk about. I thought he was fabulous. Yeah, and of course he was on the stage when I graduated from Edinburgh University in of the course. 1960s, so he was he was there on the stage as, as Chancellor. He's just been there yeah. all the way through my lifetime. You know, if you think he's written into the history of Scotland, he was a knight of the, the thistle at St Giles in, in Edinburgh. He was there. I remember when I was at primary school in Kinghorn on the, the 5th of 4th, I was at the opening of the first 4th road bridge where the Queen and Prince Philip were first to cross over the new road bridge as it opened in, in 1964. And he was back again with his interest in engineering. He was there to over, to have a look at the construction of the new Queen's Ferry crossing. And again, but this time as, as a private citizen, because he had retired from public life, he was there when the Queen and Prince Philip opened the Queen's Ferry Crossing in 2017. Yeah, I mean, that, that was incredible when you think that he had retired from public life, but he chose to come up to Scotland and open the Queen's Ferry Crossing in 2017, because that was his interest. He just did not give up. And I think we're very fortunate to have had him, I was just thinking he's been in the whole of my life. There's never been a day of my life where he hasn't been part of it, you know, in terms of just there as part of, of the UK. Yeah, and he very nearly wasn't 
because on that visit to the University of Edinburgh, one of the over-enthusiastic pupils kicked a football which went straight at him. And if I hadn't been for the quick thinking of his special branch officers, it might have taken his head off. So maybe, maybe it could have been part of history. And one of the things, talking about football, Liz, one of the things that he was passionate about too was what is now known as Fields and Trust, but started life as the National Playing Fields Association. That was started in 1925, obviously before his time, but when he heard of it, he became very, very involved with it. This was an association who were very aware that a lot of green space was being swallowed up and sold off by councils for building opportunities and that therefore depriving all the local children, if you like, of anywhere to play. So the National Playing Fields Association, Fields and Trust, they have it as their duty to ensure that there is sufficient green space left for children to have good places. And it's down to the amount of acreage per per person, per thousand people. I think their rules are called the six acre rules. So it's six acres for, I think it's per thousand people or something must be there. Yep. And it's it's interesting that when it was being set up, they didn't buy the ground, but they encouraged, they, they formed a structure whereby local authorities could get funding to support it. It was interesting that the Carnegie Trust, the UK Carnegie Trust, was instrumental in purchasing a lot of these playing fields. Yes, in the 1920s, the 1930s were funded by the United Kingdom Trust, which, of course, is really right up Andrew Carnegie Street as well, because that's what he was after, you know, sports, fields, opportunities for children to play and this is what he did it's a fantastic organization now and now works very strongly in partnerships so that when any planning department of any council is doing anything they have to incorporate so much green space into the plans he was always keen to have people participate in outdoor recreational activity but i have to laugh because um the association with glasgow glasgow rangers Football club is based at Ibrox, and during the 1950s, whenever the Queen and or whenever Prince Philip was going on a tour or special event in Scotland, he would land his navy helicopter in the centre circle at Ibrox. <laughs> so an interesting relationship with Glasgow. That's very good. And of course, he's got so many foundations that you know, we could talk about the British Heart Foundation, of which he was a patron. And you know, he for 60 years, he was giving them his support and a, an advocate for, for research to save and improve the lives of our people with heart and circulatory diseases. I mean, he was involved in so many things. And we can't forget what was called the World Wildlife Fund that he really brought to the forefront of people's minds. And nowadays, of course, that's what everybody are thinking about the environment because it's now got a new name, the World Wildlife Fund now, hasn't it? It includes the environment and nature. I think Prince Charles has inherited an awful lot from his father in terms of the genes that are interested in the environment, interested in science, interested in architecture. All of that Prince Charles has inherited from his father. And, you know, something that people don't know is that he also had a very strong interest in art. He designed jewellery for the Queen, he painted, and he was patron of the National Galleries of Scotland for a good number of years as well, and also the National Zoological Society of Scotland. So he took a particular interest when the two pandas came on loan from China on part of a a breeding programme. 
Oh dear, they're still trying. Ten years. Not a lot of success there. <laughs> I don't think it's the same ones, but uh, we haven't had a lot of success with that program. But um, he took a, a particular interest in it. And of course, you were talking about Charles there. Another thing that Charles has inherited from both parents is his love of Balmoral. You couldn't talk about links with Scotland without mentioning Balmoral. And I think, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh just just loved being up there. And when he, in the 1960s, persuaded the powers that be to allow the cameras to go into, inside the royal family and see them at work, rest and play, it was quite a a controversial thing to do. But I remember it happening. I remember seeing it on television and thinking, gosh, they are human. And one of the big ones was the barbecue, Liz. Do you remember the barbecue that I do? He was very much in charge of the Queen was making the sandwiches, but Prince Philip was in charge of the barbecue. Like I suppose many dads are in back gardens up and down the country in the summertime. It's interesting that this week, as the royal family have released private photographs, you know, their own photographs. So many of them have been around the Balmoral area. And there was one released by the Queen yesterday, which was um, of her and Prince Philip dressed in kilts and Highland wear, just on the the moors beside Balmoral, and obviously just having so much fun, so relaxed. And the tartan was, you know, specially designed tartan, the Balmoral tartan can only be worn by the royals. And I think it's a particularly beautiful tartan. And following on from our podcast on Tartan Week and Tartan Day, I think the Balmoral tartan is a just a lovely tart. It's a kind of a, a greyish tartan. I think it fits in very nicely. And just to conclude our, our tribute this week, Nicola Sturgeon obviously gave the response um, through the Scottish Parliament and it was lovely. But what she, what she said that I didn't know was that shortly after the Queen's coronation, Philip planted a cherry tree in the grounds of the Canongate Kirk in Edinburgh, just opposite the Holyrood Parliament. And this um, cherry tree that he planted was directly opposite one that the Queen had planted a year earlier. And as she said, these cherry trees are just about to come into bloom and they'll be there for many a year to come. So I know that I, as one, every time I pass the Canongate at this time of year, I'll just give a nod in tribute to a great man who gave so much to Scotland. And these cherry trees are absolutely beautiful. I hadn't realised they were planted by the Queen and Prince Philip. Thank you, Liz, for giving us that information. There we go. So word of the week, Helen. Do you have a word of the week? Well, I thought a stoter. I thought Prince Philip was just a rare stoter. A really good-looking, very great man. A stoter. He was indeed. He was very handsome. That's certainly something that's come home um, this week. Well, again, I'm going back to Nicola Sturgeon's speech in Parliament, where she kept on referring to the Duke. We have a, a kind of funny way of saying it in Scotland, which it comes out more as chook, the chook of Edinburgh. And a chook, a chookie is a chooky hen. It's used, I know that the Australians use a chook as a, as a, a hen, but we tend to use it as chooky, more of an adjective. So come on, my wee chooky hen. Right, so um, chook or juke, chook is another Scottish word. Very appropriate too. It is. So I hope people have enjoyed our tribute to Prince Philip, and the Duke of Edinburgh. Thank you for to a very great man. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. 
And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.